everyone, and thanks for joining us today on Cohen Esri Apartment Investors Podcast. Um, on today's episode, we're going to talk about our own competitive advantage. So we know there are a lot of sponsors out there and a lot of companies who are trying to buy and manage and operate properties throughout the United States. Um, but we think there's a few key differentiating factors about our company um, that we'd like to share with you that thinks um, that we think we can set ourselves apart from the competitive landscape. Um, so for one, um, I would say our history um, and the length of time we've been doing this, Lee, maybe you can expand on that a bit and talk about how we got to where we are today. Sure, Lydia, thank you. Uh, the company was founded in 1969, 1970 timeframe. Uh, so we've been in business a long time. Uh, I've been here since 1975. So I'm an old guy and I've been here a long time. Uh, and uh, over that uh, 50 plus year uh, history of the company, we have purchased apartments on a one-off basis uh, for decades. Uh, but in the, the uh, mid 2000s, 2006, 2007, uh, we believed that a more programmatic approach to apartment investing would be uh, beneficial. And we had investors that were asking us to help them find properties. And, and as a result, we began that, uh, that process of a more programmed approach to uh, acquiring apartments uh, and really closed the first uh, transactions at the end, at very end, December 31, 2010. Uh, we thought we might be able to, to do that uh, a few years earlier, but it was not the right time. And then, of course, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 came. And after that, it was truly the right time to begin buying apartments on a program basis. So we initially, we called it version 1.0. We've talked about this on a prior podcast. Uh, and we had friends and family and country club money. Uh, and, and our approach was to buy more properties, but uh, it was not quite as focused as version 2.0, which uh, so version 1.0, we acquired, I don't know, eight or nine properties uh, uh, of varying sizes. Some were tax credit uh, properties that were at the end of their tax credit period, and we were able to convert those to market rate. Uh, and others were just straight apartment purchases that were market rate to begin with. Uh, and uh, again, small to large. The largest, I think, was 214 units. The smallest was uh, 50 units or so, 48 units, something like that. And so we really didn't have as refined a thesis as we do now. Now, in 2015, we launched version 2.0 and began acquiring larger Class B market rate uh, acquisitions that uh, the sweet spot has become 350 units or more. Uh, in very targeted markets. Uh, and as a result, uh, the, the thesis has narrowed and become very refined. Um, and uh, so a lot, it's more homogenous, if you will, in terms of, of the type of product that we're acquiring. And uh, we're, we're not doing it willy-nilly in different markets. We're doing it in uh, very targeted markets. Uh, so uh, that brings us to, to the current uh, time frame, and a, a lot of this uh, success that we've been having is a result of relationships that we've developed. Uh, relationships are important. I mean, that's an obvious statement. However, 
there are a lot of p- people in our space, in our industry, that are, are very transaction-oriented. Uh, we had a large brokerage unit for a period of time and had a lot of transaction-oriented people in our organization. We sold that back in 2005 and really have focused on building relationships. One of our primary equity providers uh, we've had a 30-year relationship with, a a multi-family office that uh, we've had a a variety of interactions with over the years and helped them. Um, And uh, another one of our LP relationships has has been a longstanding relationship uh, as well. So uh, there, there are there's so much that can be said for relationships. In fact, there was a, a, a transaction that we killed recently. We we were being awarded that particular property. It was a nice 275 unit property that uh, was in a good location. But after our team looked at it quite extensively, uh, they determined that it, it wasn't the the, the best an optimal uh, type of acquisition. And as hard as it is to buy properties right now, uh, it made sense to kill the deal. And as a result, our limited partner, uh, longstanding relationship said, thank you, thank you. We go with your nose. But in this particular case, we appreciate the fact that uh, you were discerning that way and you were working on on a relationship basis as opposed to a transaction basis. So uh, whether it's with brokers, and Ryan can speak to this to, to a great extent, uh, the brokerage community relationships, investor relationships, uh, there are many uh, uh, approaches that we take uh, to, to building and nurturing those relationships. We had an investor group uh, ask recently, uh, with our co-investment fund, we were talking to them about it, making an investment and and they would make a $200,000 investment in a $26.5 million fund. And they said, why do you need us? We're small potatoes to you. And our response was, it's all about the relationship. You, you never know where that relationship will eventually take you. Uh, and, and we believe that we want to collect and nurture as many relationships as we possibly can uh, over a period of time and serve those relationships because you just never know uh, what that may produce. So uh, I I can't emphasize enough that part of our moat, if you will, is all about relationships. And Ryan, why don't you talk about how relationships play into the uh, acquisition uh, approach that you take uh, and, and give some specific examples of, of how that's beneficial. Yeah, I'm happy to do that before I, I'll get into that in a minute, but there's a couple things I want to point out Lee, to what you said that I really think are huge competitive advantages for us. And, and one is we'll, we'll toot our own horn. You've been here since 1975, right? Bob's been here since 1970, me since 2002. A big advantage is we've lived through, you've lived through how many cycles yeah. in, in the market. Um, Bob's lived through more than you have, and, and I've lived through less than anybody, but I've even lived through a few. And so we've seen people be successful there. We've seen people get burned and we've learned and transferred the knowledge to the team. And I think that that's an invaluable, um, competitive advantage because if you haven't lived, this market is cyclical and it's always going to be cyclical. 
And so if you don't learn from those cycles and there's similarities and they're all kind of a little different, but you really learn how to refine and massage your process by learning from those cycles. I think the second big one to point out is in all these years, we've never lost a property. And that is unheard of in this market. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. Somebody's made a bad investment somewhere. Somebody's like, we have never lost a property. And that's, I think, huge. Hey, Ryan, maybe, maybe for people who aren't super familiar with what that means, what do you mean by lost a property? When we say lost a property, you know, you made a bad move. You made some bad assumptions. The market turned on you when you didn't think it would. And so the property gets foreclosed on by the lender or, you know, ultimately gets sold at a loss. And that's, we haven't lost a property by being taken from a lender. And, and that is truly unheard of anymore out of the market. Um, you know, you talked about relationships in the acquisition process. Those are huge. Anybody needs to work and protect their reputation. Like I said, leading into this, having never lost a property is big. My team has really built the reputation with the brokerage community of we're salt of the earth Midwest guys. We do what we say we're going to do and we close on the timelines and at the price points we say we're going to close at. And that's, that's big. Every property we have purchased, we have not been the highest bidder. We just haven't. We've gotten the deal because we either know the broker, we know the seller, we know the equity behind the seller. Somebody knows us, whether it be us individually or us as a firm, and, and the deal has swung our way because of that. And so, Lee, you're right. Relationships all across the board, real estate is a relationship business. And if you don't have that as a pinnacle to your competitive advantage, then frankly, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice because that that's going to carry the real estate business I, for the foreseeable future, I think, Lee, I don't know what you think, but I don't see that changing at all as part of part of the real estate piece. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And and again, I get back to so many sponsors are are just transactionally oriented, uh, which yes, there's a transaction component to acquiring a property, no question about it. But it's it's wrapped in a much broader sense with the relationships that uh, whether it's the title company. I mean, we work with the, uh, the, a lot of times the same title company, and that's helpful. It smooths out the transaction. The seller likes that if, uh, if we're using a title company that, uh, that, that we've worked with many times before. Uh, and again, we, we go into these transactions and, and, and the ultimate acquisition process uh, attempting to make things as smooth as possible uh, for the seller. Uh, because again, who knows, we may come back again and buy another property from that seller. And if they had a good experience with us, uh, we may get the nod the next time. Um, and uh, it, it just, the way we've been raised is all about serving relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think that can't be overstated enough, the, the relationships piece of this. Um, Ryan, maybe if you could also talk about the fact that we're a vertically integrated company, what that means, and particularly how Cohen Esri Communities and Nexus 5 come into the mix um, for CEAI. Yeah, so let's talk about vertically integrated. So vertically integrated, when we say that terminology, it means that the company can, can do everything from underwrite the asset, purchase the asset, manage the asset, manage the construction and manage the disposition process. So really you're, you're talking about a company that can do all of those things 
maybe plus some. So that's how Cohen Esri is built. We are an investor. We are an acquisition arm. We have the management group. We have the construction component. We have a technology group. The whole nine yards is vertically integrated. And so once a property comes into the fold, it is a Cohen Esri community. Um, What's really interesting about us from a competitive advantage standpoint is how we handle the diligence process. So I am, I grew up in the management world, just like Lee did, and I'm a stickler for this process. You know, when we get a property under contract, we go in with a full team, full complement of team members. It's usually somewhere between 10 and 15 team members will descend on the site. They're going to spend about four days on the property. We walk 100% of the units. We look at 100% of the files and test them against the rent roll. We do a, a actual physical shop of all the competitive properties. We do a night drive of the property. We do a staff review, a contract review. And the whole idea is we throw the blanket completely off of everything. And we look at every little nook and cranny so that we know what we're buying. Um, so many groups out there, and, and Lee can say this because we're always amazed, on deals we sell, come in, look at 10% of the units, 20% of the units, and then extrapolate, assuming that's what they have. And I'll tell you what, you can find a lot of things by walking 100% of the units that if you stuck with that 10%, you might not uncover. And so it really eliminates what I call oopsies, um, things that you don't know you're going to walk into up front. Um, And so the management team does that. The construction team does an entire walk of the exterior of the property. And their charge for me is, I need you to tell me everything that's wrong with it. Now, we're not gonna do everything that's wrong with it because a lot of things go into reserves. So things like HVAC units, those have a life cycle. You're gonna cycle through those every year. Um, And so we can put that over here, but I wanna know how many of them are at the end of the life cycle. A similar thing with water heaters. Uh, roofs. We want to know because we're building our capital plan for the initial injection, but we also need to make sure the investment's properly capitalized on the backside to handle all the physical plant issues that the property may have. So it's very detailed. Now, here's the big competitive advantage that you don't see in a lot of firms. The management company and the construction company have ultimate veto power over a transaction. So if they come back, they have to manage it. They have to execute the plan. If they come back and say, we can't do this for this amount of money, or this area is not what we thought it was once we really dug into it, or the competitive set that we've looked at, we cut all these deals and they're given $500 concessions, don't do the deal. The deal's dead um, because we have to be able to do that. And in contrast, a lot of companies, their acquisition arms run the show, right? They're going to do the deal. Like Lee said, it's transactional. We're going to transact and it doesn't matter what happens. And we, we just don't do that here. I mean, my MO is that I'm putting my own money in these, these deals. And if I won't put my money in, I can't ask anybody else. So, and, and Lee, that came from you. I learned that from you early on in the business. And so I think there's a lot of positives to how we do our process to make sure we're actually getting what we're, what we're purchasing mm-hmm. from a detailed standpoint. Well, and I might add too, that uh, another factor here where relationships are concerned and, and building those relationships. If we run into a situation, which doesn't happen often, but it has happened, where we, we're going to reject a deal that we have under contract because of uh, something that's fatal, uh, if you will, rather than go back and retrade with the seller, uh, as m- many sponsors do, 
we just kill the deal. We say, look, this is not going to work. Uh, we, we don't we don't want to, to to play the retrade game. And as a result, our reputation in the brokerage community and with many of the sellers that know us is you don't have to worry if these guys say they're going to buy a property, they're not going to come back at the 11th hour and try to retrade the price. Uh, and, and that's important to us. It, it, one of our core values is integrity. And we don't believe that it's in for us anyway. I'm not condemning other sponsors, but it's not in our definition of integrity to use what we find on a property to go back and retrade the price. So, and I think that's a good point, Lee. And I we should really point this out because I want to make sure that 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 message is clear. We do so much work on the acquisition side at the front end of the deal, underwriting it, doing our tours, looking at metadata. All, all of the background work that it is very, very, very rare that, that we would have a surprise like that. There are really only two deals in all these years that I've done this that we have pulled out after the contract was executed. And it was all seller not disclosing things up front. And, and again, this 10%, when we did the broker tour, you didn't see these things um, that caused us to go sideways and and that it's just very rare because we're very meticulous up front before management ever gets there of really understanding on the acquisition side what we've got mm-hmm. and ryan we, we've maybe talked about this in another episode but i think it's worth maybe rephrasing here since you're speaking about our due diligence process can you speak about the financial piece a little bit more the modeling that we do in the sensitivity analysis um what you and Matt and your team put together as you're figuring out the right price point even. Yeah. I mean, the modeling process is pretty detailed and, you know, even to get to the actual underwriting, there's a a huge amount of gauntlets they have to get through before we even start putting numbers on paper. So we've talked a bit before about the pipeline. You know, we look at 50 or 60 deals a week to find two or three that look interesting. It means it fits our basic story Um, out of two or three that look interesting um, we'll start throwing no out of 10 that look interesting, two or three will make it through to gauntlet one once we dig into the basic data. Once it enters gauntlet one, we're looking at household incomes in a one, three, and five mile radius. Those have to be 50,000 and growing. We're looking at crime statistics. We're looking at school district ratings. Um, we're really making sure that the story is there. And the story means if we're doing value at it, it has to be tested or it has to be prevalent in the submarket already and already happening. Um, and looking at rent runway. Out of 10 of those that we throw through the gauntlet one, two or three are going to get to actual underwriting. And that's really when we're putting the stress test in the model. Um, growing up in the management world, you, you understand how apartments work. So our models are detailed. It, it's not, our models are not throw things in master categories, seven categories and spit numbers out. I literally have my analysts go through and they staff the property exactly how we want it staffed by salary level, manager, assistant manager, how many leasing agents, how many maintenance guys. It's it's that level of detail to make sure the modeling is the way it should be. And we've staffed and set the property up for success. Um, and then we go through our dozen investment metrics, which are, you know, cap rate in, cap rate out, price points in and out um, per unit, our cash on cash returns, yield on cost, IRR, equity multiple. Um, and all of those have to be green before it goes into offer. And, you know, out of 10, we underwrite two or three actually clear to offer. And out of 50, we bid on, we get one. So it's, I mean, it's a machine that has to run really quickly. 
Um, but we don't want to sacrifice quality for quickness. So we absolutely have to make sure that we are dotting our I's and crossing our T's in the underwriting process. Right, right. Okay, so how about um, one of our core values, as Lee mentioned, integrity is one of them. One of our core values for the company is customer fulfillment. Um, and we use a pretty unique tool called the Net Promoter Score um, in order to measure customer fulfillment, how happy are our residents um, and are we exceeding their expectations on site? Um, Ryan, could you speak to that tool and how we use it and how we've been able to see results, um, which I think is, is another unique factor about Cohenesri? Yeah, I mean, the Net Promoter Score asks a, a basic question, which is how likely are you to refer us? That, that's really what you're looking for. Um, and it's on a scale of one to 10. And you have promoters, you have neutrals, and you have detractors to that. Um, so our Net Promoter Score right now is a plus 36, um, which is considered really, really good in that world. Anything over zero is considered good. Mm -hmm. 50 is like the gold standard um, if you look at it. So that's what we're headed for. But what we do with this is we measure this net promoter score at every touch point the resident would have. So it's at move in, it's every maintenance ticket, it's at renewal, it's at move out. Um, because we want to hear from the customer what their experience is. And so it's been eye-opening because we can see slicing that data down, where as a company we need to focus um, and where our resources and training need to focus. And so with, and Lee can kind of speak to some of this, but what we've done over time is built different programs around areas where we are seeing weakness in, in the net promoter score. Um, and that's working well because the net promoter score continues to grow. And that means our programs are working the way we we anticipate they will. So Lee, I don't, you might have way more to add because the net promoter score I know is your is your uh, baby. So you might have more to add than I do to that. But Well, one of the things that uh, I like to use as an example of customer fulfillment, because that's really what this is all about. How, how, and customer satisfaction is one thing. Fulfillment is a higher state of being. And that's why we selected customer fulfillment as one of our five core values. Uh, so how do you distinguish between customer satisfaction and, and customer fulfillment? And, and the way we do it, uh, let's say a resident calls uh, the property office and says, I have a leaky kitchen faucet. Uh, customer satisfaction would be we get a maintenance technician to that uh, unit as quickly as we can. They change the faucet washers. Uh, they make sure they clean up their mess. They don't use the nice hand towel in the kitchen to wipe their grimy hands on. Uh, and they, 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 they've taken care of the, the task at hand. And the resident should be satisfied with that. Customer fulfillment is we take a checklist of the six or seven most prevalent issues in that particular apartment community that are encountered in unit. And uh, while the technician is there replacing the faucet washer, he or she checks these other items, these other six or seven items, uh, and fixes whatever needs to be fixed. Uh, we then contact the resident and say, just checking to make sure that you're happy with your, your faucet. And oh, by the way, while we were there, we checked these other six or seven things. We found two more issues and they were taken care of. And the resident says, wow, I didn't even know that I had issues with uh, you know, my furnace not uh, optimizing or whatever. Uh, and I'm really 
uh, ecstatic now that uh, I didn't even have to call for those items. And so that is, is an illustration of what customer fulfillment is all about. And so we, we strive for that, uh, that notion of customer fulfillment uh, every single hour of every single day uh, throughout the year. And the, the measurement, of course, is the net promoter score on a scale of zero to 10. How likely are you to refer this apartment community, your friends and family? And uh, there's, uh, you know, a scale of zero to 10 makes it fairly simple. And uh, where we end up with uh, failing grades, uh, we can attack the problem and get to the bottom of it and, and hopefully turn that resident around and, and have them singing our praises eventually. It's an opportunity for us. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is our industry has not adopted this net promoter score, which is an internationally utilized metric by Apple and Delta Airlines and uh, major companies uh, across the globe use this. And yet our industry does not use the net promoter score. And so that's a differentiator for us. Now, it's not something we go beat our chest about. Uh, hey, we've got this great net promoter score. But what it does is it tells us that we have a high level of, of resident engagement and, and fulfillment, which manifests in higher rents, it manifests in lower turnover, it man manifests in resident referrals. Um, and we actually have a leaderboard uh, for the different property sizes. So there's three, three different categories, depending on the size of the property. And uh, there's some incentive compensation that we've developed for our team members, not just the, the site managers, but the entire site teams uh, that uh, the, the net promoter score for that property comes into play. Uh, so we like to think that, uh, again, uh, the whole way we approach, and, and notice I don't call them tenants, and we call, we call uh, people that occupy our, our properties residents, but really we call them customers because that's we're trying to, to make sure our team understands that this is a customer relationship. And if they keep the, the whole notion of customer front and center, they're more likely to deliver that fulfillment that, uh, that we've been talking about. I think that, and Lee, that's such a great point that the difference between satisfaction and fulfillment highlighted is just anticipation. I mean, if you think about brands that you love and brands that you'll never go away from, you're fulfilled and largely because they're anticipating your need. And, and that's, it's such a huge piece of the NPS score that, that I think our industry misses a lot because we're constantly putting out fires or looking at a transactional basis instead of really lifting up and thinking, how do we make this experience fulfilling for folks and keep ourselves ahead of, of calls. Right. I mean, that's, that's a huge opportunity that we're, we're taking advantage of. Well, I think too, that uh, the way we underwrite with, you know, debt uh, and equity combinations and all the other factors that come into play, part of the margin of safety here that we're always looking for uh, is how do we beat the projections. So we say that we'll have uh, 92 or 93% economic occupancy, perhaps uh, with, with vacancy factors and delinquency factors. But if, if we're delivering that customer fulfillment, the core value, 
that gives us perhaps two or 300 basis points of, of additional uh, revenue that drops right to the bottom line, frankly, uh, for the benefit of our investors, because we are taking such good care of the customer, uh, big time differentiator. And I mean, I would just add one last piece of this too. It's really a company-wide effort to make sure this happens. Um, Lee, you always include these in our company-wide publications that we send on a regular basis, the leaderboard that you mentioned and what efforts different properties are taking in order to expand on customer fulfillment. So everybody sees that, you know, right. from me as a fund manager to our property accountants, um, to people who are here in a corporate office and other lines of work as well. So it's, it's really been a big time Company, company-wide effort. Of course, people on out in the field make a big difference directly in that. Um, but it's been a top priority and, and certainly differentiates us from a lot of other sponsors. So with that, I think we've covered our topics for today. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks everybody for listening today. Mm-hmm.